Welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. This is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Paula Fontes. Dr. Fontes is an internationally recognized transplant surgeon, a renowned scientist, and an entrepreneur. Dr. Fontes, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you. So I know you have a variety of uh, initiatives, but perhaps we can start this discussion with uh, introducing the pioneering work that you've done in terms of organ preservation. Yes, absolutely. This was the beginning of our lab after being in clinical transplantation for most of my life, for 25 years operating and seeing patients and being in the lab. I was fortunate enough to be the director of the liver transplant program at UPMC for almost a decade when we did 1,500 liver transplants and I saw over 10,000 patients. And I was very frustrated with the lack of technology that we have in organ preservation. We were still doing a business based on cold storage preservation, which is basically putting the organs inside of an ice bucket without any technology to enhance the quality of the organs or trying to rescue organs that we could not use. And I was very upset with the fact that I also became a co-founder and a first medical director of the UPMC Organ Recovery Center, where we were getting up to 15,000 organ offers a year. And we were discarding a lot of human organs that could be used because we did not have a good system to preserve the organs. And obviously, practicing medicine and surgery every day and dealing with the patients and with the families when the patients die on the waiting list, it's a devastating feeling because those are the lives that we could save. So it actually became clear to me in one point that working as hard as we were on the forefront of the clinical and surgical field, we're not moving this enterprise because we didn't have enough innovation in our practices. So that was the time that I decided to go back to the lab and I picked a the McGowan Institute, because I knew the McGowan Institute from the very beginning when Dr. Griffith built this institution way back in the early 90s. I was in the McGowan, I think, for the first time in 1992, and I followed the work that the institution did all these years with the Artificial Heart Program, and I was very impressed by the work done. So being on the field of medical devices, trying to develop a new technology for organ preservation, for me was clear that the McGowan Institute was the right place to be. So, introduce the subject of cold storage preservation and its limitations. Tell us about your alternative that you've invented. When we analyzed the biological features of organ preservation, which was mainly developed by Dr. Belzer in Wisconsin in the 1960s and became the gold standard for the field for 40 years, The thought that we could use buffers to contain the pH of the cells and the fluids and drop the temperatures and minimize the function of the mitochondria and don't use oxygen at all to keep tissues alive. It was a well-thought process in the 1960s, but with the evolution of medicine, it, it really became clear that for our daily clinical practices, a lot of the organs being discarded were organs from patients that require an early infusion of oxygen within the tissues to be able to recover from this initial insult. 
So we do have in our practice today a lot of donors that we call the expanded criteria donors where these organs are actually significantly damaged before we actually go and recover these organs. So it was clear that the system based on hypothermia with no oxygenation and using solutions that were basically buffers to sustain this initial acidosis that the tissues reach on. So we team up with a group from the Netherlands that we met in 2009, and we decided that they have the best features regarding the medical devices because they did have a PhD bioengineer who was willing to work with us, and he actually came to the McGowan Institute. And we spent a lot of time working on the device first, which is a McGowan tradition, meaning that you want to develop the technical features of a medical device to have the best use of this for your purpose. And after doing this work for a couple of years with this Dutch group, it became clear that the next frontier in this business was to develop the ideal solution for organ preservation. Then, at that time, I realized that it was needed to have a solution that will be able to be a very powerful oxygen carrier. And when we made this initial decision on going through a new area in this solutions, we create another problem because most of the companies working with so-called hemoglobin-based oxygen carrier solutions, we call them HBOC, they were all bankrupt because this industry has collapsed after the FDA declined most of the products. And if you look at this industry, it's a 20-year development. They use more than $5 billion that did trials in more than 1,000 patients and end up with not a single approved clinical product. We went back to this field and we found a very good scientist, Dr. Rick Light, working with the group. And they decided to work with us and create a new hemoglobin oxygen carrier solution for it to be used ex vivo. And we found the, the glitches that they have, we found all the problems that they have biochemically and why they fail using these solutions in vivo. So we did some modifications in our lab to create a new ex vivo solution that was a very powerful oxygen carrier solution that could serve our purpose of using the machine perfuse device and the oxygen carrier solution to now provide organ preservation by an active process where we could go to a different temperature. Now we pick 21 degrees Celsius because of reasons that we can talk about when we analyze something called the Arrhenius curves of the mitochondria and how the tissues and the mitochondria work in different temperatures and the enzymes related to the function of the mitochondria, but meaning that if you drop the temperature to low and you are providing oxygen, you're not helping the function of the mitochondria and you're causing a lot of formation of what we call ROS, the reactive oxygen molecules that will create damage. And we didn't want to go to a high temperature because I was always concerned with infection and if we really need to preserve organs at 37 degrees Celsius in fully function. So we end up finding this niche that we could have a machine perfusion device with a new oxygen carrier solution that we could work at any temperature. And we picked this temperature of 21 degrees Celsius that we thought it was the most adequate biologically to preserve the organs and keep the functions in a decent way. So I understand the concept of needing oxygen to sustain the tissue, but why can't you use blood as opposed to some special fluid? This is a very good question. In my work as a surgeon doing the procedures for so many years, we have a huge foundation of extra 
corporeal support in our hospital, we have a lot of people involved with perfusion and with bypass. So I spent a lot of time with these people doing bypass procedures and using, and it was always clear to me that when we have the ex vivo use of blood, the problems that we cause with the red blood cells and with the rest of the plasma and all the issues related with blood itself, even, even with some leukocytes that would be, they are significant when you try to extend time. And all the people around the world trying to use blood as the ideal solution, they got into problem because blood was basically designed to be used at 37 degrees Celsius in vivo with a system that have some competence to accommodate the need of the red blood cells, which are live cells. And when they carry oxygen, they have a lot of enzymes involved in it with their function. So I also have the benefit of being a cell transplant person. I train when I came to Pittsburgh in 1991, my first fellowship was in cell transplantation and transplant immunology. So as a cell transplant person, blood transcription for me was always a cell transplant, and I was concerned with the viability of the cells, the red blood cells, in the long term use ex vivo. So for me, the idea of having hemoglobin oxygen carry molecules, which are cell-free solutions that you don't have to cross-match, that you can use at room temperature, that you have a limited supply of this, and you can play with the composition of the molecule. For me, it was the ideal vehicle to oxygenate organs rather than using regular blood. So thank you for clarifying that. So you now have a system that consists of an oxygen-carrying fluid. You have a uh, hardware that is used in the implementation of this strategy. I understand you've done some preclinical studies in this area. Yeah, I think the most important thing that the McGowan offers to the scientists is the fact that is a system built in with the preclinical facility, the Center for Preclinical Experiments, where you can actually have a perfect simulation of preclinical environment in a large model. I always believe that you have to have the basic science developed in the lab, and in some point before you go in clinical, you have to have a very well-defined preclinical large model in some of these issues involving devices on, so you can have a proof of concept documentation of what you're doing. So what I did was the following. Using the McGowan system, I first went to the FDA. So the McGowan system offered me, through Patrick Cantini and Patsy Trisler, a very good opportunity to go live and meet with the panel of the FDA to present our methodology before we actually run all these experiments to discuss with them if we're doing the right thing. Because initially we have just $1 million, which is not a lot of money for this job. So I didn't want to go to a system where we were doing something wrong and then we'll go to the FDA with the wrong data and they said you have to redo this again and there was no money for this. So I learned exactly what the FDA was looking for as far as the methodology of a preclinical study leading to an ID investigational device exemption study to come up with a new approval for a new medical technology. And with this, we went to our lab and we built a very interesting foundation with the surgeons, with Yanis, with people from anesthesia, with the clinicians, a group of 26 people working with us where we were capable to do a very interesting model where we transplant with two different techniques. So we compare our new system, machine perfusion with oxygen carrier solution with the current standard of care over a model of transplantation where the organs were preserved for nine hours, which is a very important 
milestone for human transplantation. And then we follow this for five days according to the FDA regulations to see how this technology will compare with the current standard of care. And the data was pretty clear showing that the moment that you provide effective oxygenation ex vivo during these nine hours, it doesn't look like a transplant. So after doing transplants through my whole life and putting livers in, I finally realized the impact of putting an organ into a patient that have no insult for ischemia reperfusion injury because have oxygenation provided all the way through it. So our group that we provide machine perfusion with the oxygen carrier solution have 100% survival. But the animals were so much healthier than the other group that we spent another year doing very complex uh, work doing transcriptomics, proteomics, metabolomics, and integrating all this data. We talked to Vodovots doing primary component analysis, dynamic Bayesian networks, and dynamic network analysis to have a bulk of data that we could look at the mechanistic impact of good oxygenation into the organs. And with that, we finally wrote a decent paper that was published in a very good journal. And we were clear now that we were able to understand this very interesting phenomenon involved with good oxygenation under these temperatures that we designed. So this is very exciting. I seem to recall that uh, the next major step in this pathway is to uh, petition the FDA for a clinical trial? Yeah, the FDA has very tight regulations that involve not only the methodology of the clinical experiments, the preclinical experiments, but the QA, QC, and everything that is involved. So the devices have to be made on a GMP facility, the solutions have to be made on a GMP facility, has some approval, some level of security for patients. So this work behind the scenes and making the system QA, QC clear, it took us another couple of years and a lot of money has been invested from the company built around this. And I'm so grateful that this happened because this translational research does not happen alone if you don't have private industry coming through the academic world because there is not enough resources in the academic world to move from the scientific initial point, from the you know, bench to the bedside, this is a long way of development and energy and uh, financial resources that we have to have the input from the financial people. And I'm very happy that we have this because our company was actually built by one of our patient's husband. So we were lucky enough to have a patient that we operated many years ago who want to make a difference for the patients who did not have the same treatment that she got at UPMC. So she decided to create an endowment for our lab, a $1 million endowment, to give us a chance to develop this technology. And once we moved this technology, and we got this paper published, and we got all this data, we got evidence-based, clear information that this was a positive impact, her husband, who is a very bright MIT engineer and owns an investment bank, he decided to build a new company on with the idea to make a self-sustainable enterprise that could lead us through the clinical application of this so we can actually use this technology in our patients. So where is the uh, schedule in terms of uh, moving forward to a clinical trial? What's your guess as to when this might mature? We've been trying to complete the FDA requirements now for two years. And while we were doing this, 
we have a very good exchange with TFDA. We end up sending a document called the pre-ID where we basically send the profile for the clinical trial which was fully accepted and we send all the preclinical data which was fully accepted. They have very small questions, two topics on the solution itself and on the potential pathology on the liver caused by this solution. We have all this thing covered. But while we were doing this, the company providing the solution for us went bankrupt. They went chapter 11 and they disappeared. So we were forced to create a new enterprise and create a new solution for our use based on what we knew. Luckily, we have a chance to recruit the leading scientists of this company, who is probably one of the world's experts in this field of HBOX, Dr. Light. And he ended up working with this new company, and now he is developing this new molecule. And because of our interaction with the FDA, it was very clear that if we're going to do a new molecule for this application, let's do it right, and let's do a human-based molecule that we can have different applications for this so we get away from this bovine problem that some benefits and some risks of using bovine products in human therapy. So we have now a company that is developing this new human-based oxygen carrier solution with all the benefits of the things that we learned over 25 years. And this solution now, it will be the solution used for our clinical trials. So we hope that we can move the chains on both sides, on the FDA and on the company, that we can start the clinical trials in 2017. That's very, very exciting. So I perceive the uh, concept that when this system matures, you could, in fact, have a, an inventory of uh, perfused organs like livers that could be uh, uh, waiting for the right recipient. Is that a viable concept? No, this is a great concept. As an engineer, you can conceive this with your experience on this field. And I am happy to say that we have an unbelievable support from UPMC. So they gave us some funds and they offers a room in the OR where we could actually, we did perfuse human organs with this technology, exactly with this thought process that we want to create at UPMC an organized CU where we can take all the organs being offered to our center, to our patients, and we will do this work on the bench, ex vivo, trying to recover most of these organs and then do a test drive so we can prove that they have enough function and safely use them in our patients. But this field of perfusing organs 24-7, this is what created our second patent with Dr. John Callum from CCM, who is my co-inventor on the second patent. We realize that while you're perfusing organs outside of the body with a system, it creates a new discovery platform for biomarkers, which is by itself a very powerful industry, much bigger than transplantation. So on our second patent, we are really working with different companies on that they are pursuing the development of biomarkers for organ function. And the first goal is to develop with Dr. Callum a biomarker for kidney failure. He has already developed one and approved by the FDA, but we want to continue this platform that they call cell cycle arrest, where he has some very clear markers of potential kidney damage that could happen after initial insult. So I am very happy to build something like this because in the end, as a transplant surgeon doing this for 25 years, I got very close to the donor families. And they are, for me, the true heroes of this field because they are the ones in the moment of tragedy of their life. They have the insight 
to think about the human race and donate the organs of the loved one so they can save lives. And for me, this is a gesture of love and amazing insight that I can't say enough about it. But a lot of these organs, when they're not used, I always felt bad about it because we were not fulfilling our missions to use the organs that they donate to us so gracefully on. So a lot of this technology that we create with the biomarkers is intended to use this discarded human organs in a way that even if we're not going to transplant these organs, these organs can help us to develop biomarkers for the futures as a predictive markers for diseases that people will have like fat liver disease and acute kidney injury that we could actually help patients who are healthy today and we have this blood test and they could get a text message saying you have this molecules you should see your physician because you might have this promise in the future and for me this is an amazing development that we will be able to do if we can implement this then from the you know, tragedy of this initial death and from the intention to donate organs for a transplantation this family has also they are also creating this amazing reservoir of knowledge that we can use now in a prospective way to create new biomarkers for medical diseases. So you also mentioned there were three patents. You've described two of them. Tell us about the third one. Yeah, the third one for me is probably the most emotional patent because when we developed the liver system and it was clear that providing oxygenation was a very good benefit for the livers, at the time we are also doing limb transplantation at UPMC where we were taking care of patients that had previous amputations. And I was involved with the beginning of this program and I saw how difficult it was to implement this program at UPMC. And I wasn't very happy with the way that we preserved these organs, these limbs. And I saw these patients in the ICU and in the office and I realized the challenge of transplanting a limb because this is a segment that we actually do connect the nerves. I was very nervous about not giving enough oxygen to the nerves and then you have a limb or a face that really would not function well because you did not preserve them well when rejection could cause some damage to this limb and to the nerves and then you end up having a very bad function of the organ and the human hand and the human face is such a unique segments of the body that I thought that we could improve. So in 2013 we wrote our first DOD grant trying to do the proof of concept uh, work using our system, the machine perfusion system with the hemoglobin oxygen carrier solution to use in what we call composite vascular allotransplants, CVAs, which this time was a model that we transplant the segment of the abdominal wall heterotopically into the cervical region of these pigs to show the benefit of providing oxygen to a graft composed by muscle and an adipose tissue and skin for 14 hours. And the same impact that we saw on the liver, we saw on these graphs. So the data was so impressive that the DOD, after this initial grant, has funded us twice after that. And we create a completely new development with DOD because there's a huge amount of patients, just to give a bulk idea of the patients, there are over 2,500 service members from our U.S. Army that has had amputation from the last two conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, that we don't have good services for them. We can do good prosthesis for the lower limbs, but for the hands and for the faces, we don't have very good solutions for them. So 
I was very happy that the DOD was able to fund this. And the beauty of the DOD is UPIT has this Center for Military Medicine working for so many years. So we have a huge foundation with them. And we have very good partners with uh, DOD. We have a leading partner at the Institute of Surgical Research, Dr. Michael Davis, who is our main partner. And with this relationship, became very clear that the DOD was interested in an academic medical center who had a new technology, who had a startup company that could lead this into a final product and could work side by side with the DOD members, which we are very good in working with people from different backgrounds. This is how we live at UPMC, working with diversity all the time. And with this, I'm very happy to say that this DOD platform, it really took off on its own. And now, on its third year, this year we sent another three grants for the DOD, and for the first time, we now have a grant sent to use our system to work with inflammatory bowel problems, which is a very interesting problem in the medical field that we don't have a good solution for this. And we also send a new grant for using now our oxygen carrier solution for the first time as an in vivo use for hemorrhagic shock, which is a problem that kills around 4 million people every year around the world. So this is a, uh, I was going to say a fascinating story, but it's actually a series of stories where you've had one uh, innovative idea that you've matured uh, to the point that it's nearly ready for clinical use. That emerging technology has led to the other ideas that you have uh, also begun to mature as well. So our congratulations to you and your colleagues for all the fine work that you're doing. Well, the key, I think, is the institution. I mean, the leadership of this institution, UPIT has been in business since 1787. UPMC is on the 30th year now. The vision of this medical center and of this academic institution is to innovate and to provide better services for our patients and also to educate and foster groundbreaking research. And I am very happy to say that within this environment, we now have a Pittsburgh investor as a private group that is investing in our enterprises on it. And they want to create the same thing that we want to create is new solutions and better therapies for the people who had medical problems that we don't have good solutions today. This whole circle of innovation, what it does is it creates a lot of momentum around of our lab to come up with these new products on. And we have a multidisciplinary group of people that we work, it's an extensive group of people working in this projects on, that we are very happy that we can work together all the time. We are very different than each other from different countries, from different backgrounds, some are PhDs, some are geneticists, some are mathematicians, some are engineers. But in the end, everybody's focused on the clinical problems. And with the institutional support on this, I feel that we have a very unique platform to move this thing forward. So, Dr. Fontes, I'd like to thank you for joining us and sharing with our audience this fascinating set of studies that you have underway. And uh, I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for sponsoring this podcast series. If you have uh, any suggestions in terms of podcasts, you can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Until we meet again with another podcast, thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.